Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the New Realities of Cybersecurity podcast series. My name is Ian Todd. I'm a data privacy and cybersecurity consultant here at PwC. Today I'll be joined by Richard Maudling, Director of Access Governance. Having control over who has access to an organization's data, whether that be personal data, intellectual property, or thought leadership, is a fundamental security control. We'll be discussing the tools and approaches to best protect organizations from external and internal threats. Well, Richard, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Um, I, I think today's going to be really interesting. I know it's a, it's a really interesting topic within the marketplace right now. So we're going to be looking at identity and access management, uh, PwC's offering with Accessible. And I think really what people will find interesting is how things have changed over the last 10, 15 years, what's important now, what was important in the past, and how things are going to be looking in the future. So I think a good starting point for you to talk a bit about yourself, maybe a little bit of an introduction and what you do at PwC. Okay, I'm Richard Mardley. My role is to uh, lead the practice I was brought in to build a practice from scratch. Um, there wasn't one here. Uh, we're now at about 25 people and still growing. Um, prior to joining the firm, I was a partner in a small boutique. Um, we got bought out and uh, let's just say um, I didn't get on well with the, uh, the people who acquired us. So it was time to move on. Um, Going back to um, the company where I was a partner of, um, I took them into identity management back in 1998, um, completely by accident. It was one of those things we, um, I was out doing a, a piece of work for a client and they needed to have some controls as to who had access to their intranet. And I said, oh, you need role-based access control then. And they went, yeah, yeah, sounds really good. And I went home and I thought, I'd better find something. And I found a product and I imported it and we managed to sell it and then we sold some more and it sort of went from there. Right. But um, as ever with these things, it was never a planned thing. It was one of those accidental things and it just happened. Yeah. I think it's, it's interesting. I know we talked a little bit before the start of the podcast. So you're seeing more and more of this uh, importance or interest in IDAM right now. What, what was it like 10, 15 years ago? What did you see at that point where you're talking about role-based access? So that means for people who maybe don't know uh, different levels of privilege for different people within the organization. So the director of finance would have far more um, privileges than someone who's maybe just the intern. So have we, have we seen this consistently becoming more of an issue over the last 10, 15 years? Are people more aware of why it's important now? Or is this something that's just happened over the last two or three years? Oh, there's a whole load of questions in there. Yeah, it is. Um, so... How, what's changed in the past 10 or 15 years? Um, one of the main things that's changed is that people are realizing that they can't just write it themselves. They've, uh, 10 plus years ago, it was really difficult to persuade people to effectively externalize the security. Developers wanted to build it themselves, they could do it and they could get on with it and they thought it was great. And uh, a good example of that was Back in 2005, uh, there was a thing called the Bishard Inquiry and a Bishard Report, which was back to the Sower murders of Holly and Jessica. And uh, we were brought in, and one of the things that happened as a result of that was a recommendation to have a national intelligence database. That was in June, uh, announced in Parliament. In the end of September, I got a phone call and I said, Richard, can you go and see so-and-so? Uh, it's pretty urgent. So off I go, I go and see uh, a company, I won't name them, and they had been given the job of writing the National Intelligence Database. Right. And they said to us, 
what we want you, and the home office who'd given me the call said, what we want you to do is put your technology in to, to secure it. And we had a real battle with the software developer who wanted to do it. And we said, no, no, externalize it because it'll be, make your delivery quicker. Well, no, it won't. And this sort of, we had this sort of backwards and forwards discussion. There we were at the end of September. The go live date was the 23rd of December. Right. It was immovable because Tony Blair had stood up in Parliament and said it will go live on the 23rd of December. Right. So, a um, bit of a sort of shotgun marriage. We uh, eventually switched the service on on the 22nd of December and it was tight. Um, all worked, job done, client very, uh, end client very happy. Two months later, the software development company phoned us up and said, thank you. We said, thank you for what? He said, thank you for persuading us to externalize the security because we would have never have hit that um, go live date if you hadn't taken that offers and we just plugged into the services that you offered. Right. So that's, you know, that started the change. That was 2005, but um, we're still today discovering people who still write in yeah. their own stuff. Um, what's changed? over that intervening period. So the, the main, one of the main things that has changed is that uh, people have brought in identity and access management technology for operational purposes. Speed things up, automate things, take cost out. And um, there's been lots of successful projects that have done that, but there's been a lot of uh, uh, unsuccessful ones, right. a lot of failures along the way. And what it was that type of service was doing was actually just giving you access quicker to things, and it was never taking access away. So actually, all it was doing was actually making you more in, your organisation more insecure. So more and more and more people had more and more rights, and they were moving around the organisation, but no one was actually controlling that anymore. There was no uh, no one taking away them them rights. That's it. So um, two thousand and nine. Um, Society Generale uh, were defrauded of 4.9 billion euros, um, and that was be and the the guy who did it um, was a guy called Jerome Curviel, and he'd started work for the bank, and I don't know in which department, but he'd moved around different departments, and he'd worked in front office, middle office, and back office, and all the time, every time he moved, the provisioning, the identity management system gave him new rights, right. and he worked out that he had rights to do things that he shouldn't be able to do in whatever role. And he ended up as a trader and he was making trades. He knew he was losing money. But then what he did at night when everybody had gone home, he went into the systems and covered them up. Right. And this went on for a long period until somebody outside of the bank tapped, phoned them up and said, I think you've got a problem. <laughs> and it was 4.9 billion euro problem. Unbelievable. Um, he ended up in jail as well for three years. Um, because of that. So where it's switched to now is people are more interested in who's got access to what and who approved it and is it appropriate. Right. We're moving away from the let's automate yeah. because again when you think about automation um, you want to automate all of your applications or the vast majority. Many organizations have thousands you know it is not untypical to go to an organization that, that where they have at least 400 applications. Many of them have you know, thousands of applications. You cannot automate 
the join and move a lever process for all of those. Yeah. But what you can do is get a view on who's got access to what and is it appropriate across a vast number of applications. And that's where the change has taken place because, again, people realise that the cost saving of the automation in comparison with a fraud, there is no comparison. Right. They'd yeah. rather do it manually yeah. but have this overview than um, and automate just five, six applications that, that are the key ones. Yeah. And I mean, I'm just trying to picture from my experience in a modern organization, you've got cloud, bring your own devices, like you say, hundreds of different applications, VPNs, so people can get into the organization externally. So there's, there's so many different areas now. And I imagine, like you say, as a, an identity management tool, it has to encompass so many different areas. Uh, yes. the. Um the, 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 if you think of the trends uh, you're picking up on there that again have occurred from mobile workers, people mobile, people want to work from anywhere, anytime, it's the old martini principle. Right. So they want to, is, is that an age thing? Um, they want to work in Starbucks, they want to work in a hotel uh, lobby, yes. they want to work on the train, they want to work at home, and they never actually, if you watch people again, they just close the lid and away they go. Yeah. Um, and that's how people want to work. At the same time, the makeup of workforces has changed. We're not all, not everybody's an employee, a salaried employee. Some are contractors, some work part-time, work varying hours. Um, we have third parties, but they will run around with, say, an at pwc.com email address. So trying to, who's keeping your promises is a part of this, but trying to work out at face value, um, who's a salaried employee, who's a contractor, who's a third party is really difficult. Yeah. And because again, with third parties, they will bring people in and out as appropriate. Um, we're doing some work with one client at the moment who they do testing on behalf of other organizations. They're a specialist testing organization. I won't mention the industry because you'll, it'll soon work out who the client, client is. but. The people that they're testing on behalf of are all competitors to each other. Right. And they're all trying to produce similar things. Yeah. So what they need to be able to prove to what they call their sponsors, their, their, their clients, is that there, there isn't somebody from who's uh, engaged in testing a product for a rival organization who can access their data. And because these tests are set up, they run the test, they shut the test down, they move, they break up the team, they move the, te the team on. So the identity management in there is quite significant because they need to be taking the rights away, granting them new rights. Mm. At the same time, the sponsors are coming in, they have a sponsor a week come in and say, prove to me that nobody else can access our data. Right. Um, and that's, di and it's challenging. Yeah, yeah. Um, but again, it's that, um, the change in the workforce of how, again, we outsource things. You know, before those organizations would have done their own testing, now they outsource it, yeah. but there's a risk associated with that. Yeah, I think the whole thing is fascinating, truly really interesting. I think, for me personally looking at this, the, the perception, I think, is that um, cybersecurity is about hacking and about these big elaborate schemes to get into organizations. But as you've talked about, the insider, the person who's working there with Elevated privileges can be the biggest threat to an organization. They've got so much potential to cause so much more damage than a very elaborate hacking scheme might have. I don't know if people are quite 
getting that at the moment? I think this is just starting to be illuminated now. The past two, three years, um, Global State of Information Security Survey have indicated every time that the the majority of breaches are initiated by staff, current and former, especially if you don't take their yeah. rights away, yeah. especially their remote access, um, contractors and third parties. They're the main source of breaches. Uh, over 40, 40, 45% of breaches in, uh, in that region. You look at the other ones you say, you talk about whether it's hacktivists, whether it's nation state, um, whether it's things like that, they're down in the 10, 15%. Yeah, yeah. They, um, they get the headlines, um, but actually it's the insider that causes most damage, whether it's Jerome Curviel was an insider, yeah. the guy at UBS two or three years ago was an insider. He, you know, he um, emulated what Jerome Curviel did. Ashley Madison was an insider. Mm -hmm. A number of these breaches, um, ones closer to home over the past uh, year or so, have been insiders. Yeah. Um, so the, the thing with Ashley Madison was that uh, why the, the, the considered opinion is it was an insider breach was the vast amount of information that was uh, was removed, um, made public. Not only made public, but it was also um, quite diverse. It wasn't just a large data set mm. of uh, people who subscribed. There were floor plans. There was all sorts of things that actually, t you know, um, somebody who would break in probably wouldn't want you know, why do they want a floor plan of an office? It's so it, it every all the signs indicated it was an insider. Somebody um, either had some uh, morals um, and you know um, and thought, no, no, I can't be working with this sort of organisation anymore. Or something happened, or they didn't get a pay rise, or something. But they'd obviously got significant access. And I, I think that point you made there is really interesting as well because we imagine data breaches, and I know myself from a privacy perspective, is either it will be some kind of financial information or it could be some kind of public, uh, sorry, personal information about an individual. But as an insider, you can release anything. And if that's going to harm the company, and that's what your motivation is, if you don't care about financial gain or you don't care about finding out some confidential information, if you just want to hurt the organization, the insider is the best positioned person to do that, isn't it? Really, they can cause all kinds of problems yeah. from inside. And I guess that, uh, that itself is incredibly difficult. I know there's been a case of uh, a bunch of disgruntled employees, I, I think it was in India, who were working for a call centre. And as you talked about earlier, their permissions weren't taken away once they left the organisation. They, they knew this, a bunch of the friends had left. And when they all left at one time, they could also access the system. They got back in, they pulled all kinds of stuff off the system just to cause problems, maybe to steal some information, maybe to sell some stuff on. But again, it goes back to that whole, this is such a huge issue right now. I guess my follow-up question to that for you is, are the board seeing this as an issue? Because I know we talk about firewalls and we talk about doing pen testing and secure application development. Are, are, they, are the board and the exec members of organisations now realising the importance of this? Access is becoming more and more important. Um, the people who are realising this are audit committees. And that, that's because whether it's their internal audit team or the, their external auditors who are coming along and testing the controls 
as to who's got access to some of the key uh, financial uh, systems are saying, you know, you, uh, you've got lots of uh, stale accounts on this system. You've got accounts on this system that don't appear anywhere else. Mm. You have, you, you, you are not in control of who has access to your financial data. Mm. And because of that, it's being raised at, at, um, at the audit committee. And of course, your audit committee comprises some members of the board. So I wouldn't say it's a board level topic yet, yeah. um, but it is rising up and becoming uh, an agenda item on audit committees. Okay. So I suppose that the next question I'll have for you is looking at the future and the, the horizon for identity access management. I know we've got the general data protection regulations coming in. Um, obviously, PCI compliance has been around for a little while now, but there's more scrutiny over um, over data that organisations hold, who has access to that. And then obviously on top of that, we have all the, the cloud access, VPN, bring your own devices. How do you think things will move in the future? How do you envision things moving? Okay, so to take that in two parts, one, um, let's talk about <clears throat> just the, the explosion of data. Um, I, th I can't remember the source of this, but I don't think my numbers are too far out. Of all the data that we have, an organisation have, 20% will be in a structured system. Right. Whether that's in um, an ERP system, some sort of financial system, that it's only 20% of your data. So that would be something like an HR database? Correct. A nice structured yep. form of information. Yep. Your, your ledgers, your purchasing system, um, things like that. The other 80%, your sales, your um, CRM, uh, etc. The other 80%, is in Word, Excel, PowerPoint type. It just extracts. Yeah. Yeah. And if I give you an example, um, so somebody could go along to uh, the ERP system and do an extract and suck that down and put it into a spreadsheet. They could go to the sales system and do another extract and into the same spreadsheet, do some sort of correlation. So. Right, so the first two systems we have application owners we can go talk to. First question is, who's the owner of the, this merged set of data? Right. Who's in control of that merged set of data? So we've, that person who's done those extracts does some analysis on it, produces some graphs. Takes the graph, picks it up out of, PowerPoint, out of Excel and drops it into PowerPoint. Um, they add some order, send it on its way. And next thing you know, they send it to somebody outside of the organization. Right. We've now gone from some systems where the controls are really good at who's got access to the data to it's now in the wild. It, it's come out. It's in the Excel spreadsheet. We have no known owner. Um, because there was a graph, the, the person who created the graph probably doesn't realize that the way um, the Microsoft products work is that if you create a graph and you just copy it out of Excel and put it into PowerPoint, the data goes with it. Right. And now you've sent it to somebody outside the organization. So all those controls yeah. are just are now null and void. Yeah. And we're, um, that's happening in lots and lots of places. So um, the next thing really, as we start to get control of the structured systems, is going to be the, um, the unstructured data. So not only what does it contain, does it contain personally identifiable information, but who's really got access to it? Yeah, yeah. And then who owns the data? 
Once we've found an owner, you can then put access policies in place. You can then monitor who's accessing it. So let's say you've got some data, some, some documents somewhere and on Google Drive. And the, only the, a particular mergers and acquisitions team should have access to it. And late Friday night, somebody comes along from uh, IT and says, oh, that looks really interesting. Opens it up because they've got the entitlements. Just have a read of it. Don't modify it. Yeah. But yeah. now they know an acquisition of some organization yes. is taking place. Yeah. Um, we can pick that up. But then you, what you can do is let's take that team and it's been that project's been running for a while. Some people may have moved off. They should now shouldn't have access. So you can run a recertification right. to make sure that only the current team have still got access. So that's one area I think will be big, big because of yeah. the volume of data we're now generating. The other area is, is all around mobility. But um, organizations will have a policy that says, uh, if it's, this document is marked as highly confidential, it can't be taken in printed form outside of the organization. Um, good. But I got it sent in an email. Right. Yeah. I'm sat on the train. I can read it on the yeah. train. Hold on. That's wrong. Because what's the difference between the policy that says you can't have it in printed form outside of the organization? I've got it in electronic form. Um, <clears throat> so some of the things that will come along will start to detect where you are. Interesting. Um, so, so geographically knowing that you're on a train or you're out of the office or say a certain circumference of the office, you can be within two miles of the office, but no further or at this exact yeah. office somewhere else so in the city. The policy to look at these documents may be that you can only read them when you're in the office. Right. So there you are, you've got it on your laptop and you think, fancy a decent, uh, well, I may, uh, I'll fancy a cup of coffee. I'm going to go to Starbucks. Pick your laptop up, off you go, down to Starbucks, back onto the network, their, their network. Um, so geographically, I'm in the same place. Mm. Actually, I'm on a, now an unsecure network. What the, the technology will now do is say, Richard, you're on an unsecure network and you have a highly confidential document. The policy says you can't do that. I'm taking it off your screen. Yeah. Or it will blank certain bits out right. on your screen so that you can now start to enforce the policy a lot better. An interesting example I heard about this, which is quite similar, is uh, hospitals in, I believe it was Iran or Iraq, one of the two, were using iPads instead of having physical pieces of paper to write on. And they had a similar system in place that if an iPad was to leave the hospital, and I think it was a five mile radius of the hospital, the iPad would be wiped. Yep. So that, that, that trying to enforce that policy that you, you can't leave a certain area, otherwise, like I said, it has to be wiped or. Um, so another quick question for you as well is looking at something that I, I heard you speak about probably about a year ago now was the idea of uh, identity as a commodity, and as a currency. And, and people being able to regain control. So I, the way I think about this is all the information you put into Facebook and onto Twitter and all these different social media outlets that extract your personal information, regaining control over that as a, as a consumer. I know you talked a little bit about that. How do you see that in the future? How will that change? Where things have moved to, um, so if you go back 10, 15 years and even really in today's age, the, the, um, the user has very little control over their own data. It has to be done, something has to be configured somewhere by somebody uh, in an IT department. And that's fine 
um, in many instances. But if you think, start to think now about wearables and stuff that you know, uh, things that there are thing, uh, things. It is the right term, collecting data about us. You know, every second of the day, whether it's something on your wrist, whether it's your car and where you've been, um, all these things are all happening. Uh, it's your phone, and you know. It, now that data is all to do with me. Yeah. So let's let's do a, a for instance. Um, wouldn't it be great if? Well, I go to see the doctor and I'm not sleeping. We got real problems sleeping. Um, and the, so we go and see them, and the doctor starts to ask me some questions. So, so how much do you drink, Richard? You know the usual type stuff. Um, you know, do you drink a lot of coffee, tea, things like that? When do you eat? Do you do any exercise? All, all these types of questions. What time do you go to bed? And I could turn around and say, well, actually, would you like to see my sleep data? Yeah. You know, I, um, the wearable I have says what time I go to sleep, how, what quality of sleep, and what time I get up in the morning. So you could analyze that and see if there's any patterns in there. Yeah. Now, where I think we'll be able to get to is that we will be able to take that data and I'll say to you, there you are, doctor, there's my data. I will allow you to look at that data until the end of December because it's still my data. Um, I will not allow you to share it with anybody else. And all the other data that's in there that's to do with what I eat, how much exercise I do or don't do, you can't see that. So now I'm in control of data that's been associated with my identity um, to help me as, as a human being get better, be healthier, um, without risk of, say, that data being shared with an insurance company. Yeah. Or the doctor saying, actually, the real reason, actually, I had a look at your data and your sleep is absolutely fine, um, but you could really do with more exercise and, you know, cut down on the beer and do this and that. Hold on, I didn't, you know, yeah. I didn't go, go and ask you about that. Mm. Um, and so please don't tell me about it. So I think that with, um, this sort of approach of people being able to set the controls on their data will become more and more prevalent. And the, you know, the technology is coming along to do that and people will st start to, um, because of data breaches and things like that, they will want start to demand that they're in control of their data rather yeah. than it being in some faceless uh, system somewhere in the cloud, somewhere in the world. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a real um, thirst for that empowerment again. I think people understand that data has been kind of abused maybe it was over the last five, 10 years, and I think they want that back. So that's a great way that will happen. So as a final point, it'd be interesting to see what we do, uh, what we offer clients, maybe talk a little bit about accessible and what that means when you go into an organization. Okay, so we've split our, what we offer into quite focused areas. Uh, one around access governance, that who's got access to what and is it appropriate? Um, on the structured side, we also replicate that. On the unstructured side, we call that data access governance. Um, we do work around consumer identity, so that if you think of the digital age and all the number of people that need access, and going back to that, take the document off the screen because you're in an inappropriate location. So they're three areas that we focus on. Um, we also do strategy work for, for clients. I was with one this morning where they wanted to go from their home uh, plan to move from their home built system to something that's off the shelf that they can maintain that um, uh, and keep the costs down. So 
and we, we can do everything from the process part of it, the design, the strategy part, the design, the technical implementation, because we did the acquisition of Praxism earlier this year and brought in a whole load of uh, great technical expertise. And that's the thing, we have real knowledge now, don't we? Real thought leadership and expertise around this area. That's it. In, um, we are now from uh, uh, one of our partners is a company called Sailpoint. They're the leading people in terms of the, the access governance technology and we are their largest delivery partner in the UK. Um, and that, a lot of that came through because of the acquisition and the expertise that they had. So that's what we do on the advisory p part of it. But when we were going out doing that sort of work and we were asking clients about do they have confidence that their, their access control policies are working? Do they have, uh, do they, are they able to identify the insider threat? Things like that. And we were getting, mm, well, no, not really. Okay, so what are you doing about it? Um, and they said, well, yeah, well, so we, have you thought about using technology to, to help you? Um, because you've got a large number of applications, surely some technology could help you. And they, the answer came back consistently was, we've looked at technology, but um, it's a long time until we see uh, a value. Um, it's a huge upfront cost, and it's really complex to design, build, and run. Um, and this was quite consistent for talking to clients. So we came back, we thought, well, you know, surely we can solve that. So we sat and thought, well, to shorten that delivery time, that time to value, if we pre-built something, yeah then that shortens it down. We can reduce it from nine months to two months. Um, if we change the payment profile that they only pay for it when they're actually using it, yeah. there's not this huge leap of faith in the upfront investment. And because we'll do the design, the build, and then the run and offer it as a cloud service, we take away the complexity. So Accessable has been, was driven by needs uh, that we saw with our, uh, our clients have. And he's just about that where we see identity management moving to, which is prove to me or tell me who has access to what and is it appropriate. And we can do that for five applications, 500 applications, however many applications. So this is scalable to a small organization or a full-size financial institution. Correct. Anything from 1,000 users up to half a million users, anybody who's got just a small number of applications to a large number of applications. Um, and we will look for segregation of duties breaches. So has somebody got um, update salary and approved salary? Um, we will look for things like uh, accounts that haven't been accessed for over 60 days. Uh, so go back to the audit committee and what's rolling up to audit committees. Um, accounts that appeared overnight in the financial system that don't seem to be related to anybody and got torn down the next day. So we will start to identify things like that for clients. And what that will do is tighten up the security. So you mentioned earlier on about hackers um, and firewalls and the concentration in terms of building big perimeters around organizations. That's, that's been really good, but what it's done is um, organizations have got the soft center. They haven't managed who's got access to what. And because we now know that if people want to break in, they'll get in. But as soon as they get in, they want to find something that they can elevate their privileges on. Mm. If, they, if, if the security of all of the users is all locked down, they've got through the front door and they're in reception. Right. 
can't get any further yeah. because we've locked everything else down. And again, so Access Able not only satisfies um, the auditors and the regulators will come in and say, prove to me you have the correct access, or in that case of that um, testing organization, prove to me that none of our competitors can see my data. But it will also improve the security so that if there is a breach or an insider somewhere, we, we prevent a fraud happening or a, a data loss. Incredible. Well, thank you so much. I think it's been a really fascinating podcast. I'm sure people have more questions for you. So hopefully we can get you on again at some point and try and answer some more questions. But I really appreciate your time. No, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for the time. Thank you for listening. Next week, I'll be joined by Christian Arndt to discuss one of the hottest cybersecurity topics right now, CISOs of the future. In the meantime, if you have any questions, please feel free to contact me directly on Twitter at iantodd86 or email me at ian.todd at pwc.com. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review.